Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today I'm going to talk about filling in as a band member. Not being a regular member of a band, but being called to come fill in for somebody who can't be there. Now, I've been on both sides of this. I have been involved in established bands, and inevitably, from time to time, it's going to come up where you've got a gig. Maybe it's a some sort of steady, regular gig or a booking out in the future, and something comes up. Somebody can't be there. And you have to make the decision at that point. The band will have to kick it around, or the band leader, if it's a a dictatorship type band. Some something's going to have to be decided. Do we go out and play shorthanded? And we have sometimes done that. Um, particularly, you know, you hate to pick on the fiddle player, but the fiddle player is the first to go. We have at times had a five piece band with a fiddle player and get a call and the fiddle player couldn't do it. And we just went and did it anyway. But many times we would call a fill-in, call a fill-in on potentially any instrument. And I'm going to talk about um, the different instruments and how easy or difficult it is to do that. But I want you to think about uh, the the concept, the, the thing about being asked to fill in. And if you're not in a band, it's a great way for you to get your foot in the door. Not necessarily to weasel your way into a particular band, although that often happens. If somebody gets called to fill in with a group and they do pretty well and the band likes them, there could be a time in the future where that might turn into some sort of permanent arrangement. Because people quit bands. People leave bands for a variety of reasons and openings and holes come up. You know, I know of a case where a, a fiddle player filled in multiple times with a band just here and there. And then a year later, he was their mandolin player. But that came about not because he was filling in on the fiddle, but because they got to know him and they got to know that he also played the mandolin. And, you know, it's a way to get your foot in the door. If you're if you're learning to play and you've never been in a band it may be terrifying to be asked to perform with somebody. On the other hand, you may be hoping that happens. I know that when I was starting out, I would often see bands playing and thinking, gosh, I, you know, I wish I was up there. I wish I, I wish they would call me sometime. Of course, you know, if I was a banjo player and they had a, a banjo player that they've had for 10 years, they're not likely to call me and they know other people. So again, they're not likely to call you unless they know you. So accepting a fill in one time only position with a band can get your little foot in the door where they get to know you a little bit and they find out what, you, what you're capable of, or at least some of it. So that's a good way to begin making inroads. The first time I ever did this was at a 
I went to a, a bluegrass festival and the deal at the festival was if you performed on stage, you got your ticket money back. And I was just wandering around with my mandolin. I didn't have a band and bands were lining up and they were playing maybe 15 minute sets, just a whole bunch of bands lined up. And I, I just sort of hung around backstage where those bands were warming up. And I, I saw a band there that didn't have a mandolin player. I just kind of hung around, standing around, watching them a little bit. And one of them turned to me and said, Hey, you want to get up and play with us? <laughs> I said, okay. And I stepped in there, learned their couple, four tunes that they were going to do and went on stage, played with them. Didn't really do anything much. I chopped chords. I'm not even sure I took a solo on anything. And then I followed them back to the back where they were handed their ticket money back and I got mine back. So I did the same thing the next day with a different group. That kind of filling in is, is, you know, kind of at the, at the very low end of the scale of difficulty to be asked to stand up there and chop some chords is not, you know, a very difficult requirement if you know how to do that. If you're asked to fill in with a band that's really got their act together, I mean, if if you know a band who really puts on some good shows, that's a taller order. And it's more difficult for you if you're asked to fill in because you got to fill these shoes. You got to try to fit in and not just be a you know, a statue standing over there. I mean, if they've got a lot of stuff that they're doing that's pretty elaborate in terms of showmanship and musicianship, those kind can be very difficult, especially to pull off successfully with no, maybe no rehearsals. And you, you're just expected to walk up there and be as great as they are. That's hard to do, but it's hard for them too. It's hard for a band like that. That's really got a great act. It's hard for them to, at the last minute, find a fill in who can get up there and, you know, stand as tall as they do, you know? So let's talk about this, this whole thing about if you get called to fill in, first of all, it is improvisation at its finest. That's, you know, it's very unlikely that there'll be any rehearsals. So you're not only improvising any solo that you might happen to take if you're a solo instrument, but you're also improvising, you know, everything about the experience and it's unfamiliar territory. The other thing is if you're called upon to do that, you have to really listen to what is going on and try to get a feel for this outfit and fit in the better you fit in obviously the better the performance will be the better you will be accepted by the other musicians and the more likely that it might happen again and sometimes remember too that while you may fill in with a group and do a performance and they never call you again someone out in the audience may call you to perhaps fill in with them or be a permanent member and something that they're trying to get started. So it's a way to be seen. 
It's not really the avenue to hot dog and try to show off. I mean, you do want to do your best. And when you step in for a solo, show off. I mean, so long as it fits with what they're doing. But the majority of your effort should be to fit in and really help whoever asked you to fill in, help them be a complete unit. And, you know, remember that from their perspective, they've, they've already somehow eyeballed you and selected you. And so they think you can do it. So go in there and show them that they were right about that. If you do just that, if you prove that it wasn't a total train wreck, that it, you know, they're going to expect you to make a few mistakes and not know their stuff. They, they, they know that. And they're probably cutting you some slack and, and trying to make it work. So if you also try to make it work and it does work to everybody's satisfaction, that's good for you playing with them and playing with other people. And it adds to your experience level. You know, it's a completely different thing to be in a well-rehearsed act and get up and perform that well-rehearsed act than it is to grab five really good musicians, throw them together and walk them on stage and have them pull off a good show. It's completely different how that, how that functions. But in terms of what instrument you play, and we'll, we'll mention singing too, some instruments are much easier to pull off a fill-in slot than other instruments. And I wrote the instruments down in two columns in the easy category. I consider mandolin to be one of the easiest of the bluegrass instruments to pull off a successful fill-in gig. Also, the dobro and the fiddle. Those I put in the easy camp. It's, it's a lot easier to grab somebody to play mandolin with you and have it come off well. Uh, because mandolin, dobro, and fiddle, mandolin is playing rhythm. And, and the mandolin player does need to know the chords. But the character of a mandolin chop is such that if a wrong chord gets chuck, 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 if that happens here and there, it's not going to sink the whole ship. And so a mandolin player who, who knows his stuff can get up there and play songs that he doesn't know pretty quickly. And, and I mean, faking it until you make it, you know, I'm not saying you should just get up there and put your fingers on the strings and damp all the strings and play a no chord throughout the whole thing. But in an emergency, you can do that and it doesn't sink the ship. So in terms of rhythm, the mandolin is such a rhythmic percussive thing in the bluegrass world that the, the tonal qualities that indicate which chord that is and so on are a little more buried in the mix. So you can, you can get away with it a little easier. It's easier for a mandolin player to kind of learn on the fly, the unfamiliar stuff. And then when it comes to soloing, if the mandolin player is pretty good at improvising or is familiar with the material that they're doing, that shouldn't be a big problem either. And then the rest of the mandolin task is playing, you know, little fills and, you know, backup licks and things like that. 
and those always being optional are not extremely difficult for a player that, you know, has some experience. Same goes for Dobro. The exact same scenario is true for Dobro. If the Dobro player stands up there and plays some, what I'd call color licks and is doing little fills and little stuff here and there, the Dobro player may never play a chord the entire time. Now they might. I mean, if they know the tune and it seems like the arrangement calls for, you know, chord rhythm type stuff on the Dobro. I've seen guys just strumming like mad on a Dobro, uh, you know, but it's not required if the rest of the band is there. You know, you got your guitar and your mandolin and your bass holding down the rhythm section. The Dobro can just sort of behave almost like a fiddle player in that you contribute to the, to the, rhythm but you're primarily playing philics and color lead-ins and then your big solos if you get the nod you know and you may beg off you may be able you know you may and many times be called upon to fill in in a band and they tear into some song that you absolutely do not know or you're very certain that you, it would be bad if you played it and a lot of times, you know, if they've got other instrumentalists, you know, that they can skip you if they need to. So you don't, it's not like there's a gun to your head. You must play every solo for everything. But if they look at you and they're expecting you to, to take off on it, you have the obligation. You agree to the gig. Get up there and do something, you know. So mandolin, dobro, and fiddle being... um you know, more fill in, fill in lick type. What I mean is they're not in the, they're not in the heart of the rhythm section. The mandolin chop is, but not necessarily the tonal aspects of it. That's sort of defined more by the guitar and the bass. The mandolin certainly can and does add to that and should add to that, but it's not an absolute requirement. So if there's that one chord in a song you don't know and you're kind of just chucking your way across it, probably nobody will know. It would be nice if you knew it. but So those, to me, those three are a lot easier. And being, you know, in bands and operators of an operator of a band and, and this sort of thing over the years, those sort of slots were always super easy to, to fill. You know, you, you knew five or six people that you could call if – if your fiddle player couldn't be there, you know, call so-and-so. And because you knew, you know, he could just stand there and play a few fills and tear down on his solos, and it would all be good. The harder instruments. To me, the hardest instrument to fill in on successfully is the bass. Because if the bass player is playing wrong notes, it's going to sink the ship. That doesn't mean one wrong note will sink you or two or whatever. But if, 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 if the music that is being played is so unfamiliar to the bass player who's been asked to fill in, you're asking for a train wreck to happen. It's the, the bass notes are so tonally by that. I mean, which pitch are you playing C or C sharp? Are you playing a D? or an E flat at that 
particular point. It's the basis for the entire stack of notes that are being heard. And if they're incorrect, and there are choices, I mean, there isn't just one correct note for every instance, but if a bass player is playing wrong notes, it's either because he doesn't really know how to play, or he's not listening, or he's really unfamiliar with the territory. I've seen some great bass players. Had a guy fill in with us one time who knew every old country standard, and he did very well on most of the tunes with no rehearsal and no cheat sheets, nothing. But there were some tunes that when we played them, he, he just played all sorts of wrong notes because he just didn't know the material. He wasn't expecting, you know, that chord in Flint Hill special at that time. So he hit the wrong note. Now on the second time, second pass, he nailed it. It's hard. It's hard to be called to play bass. You know, when, when I get called to play bass, I, I want to really do my homework and not, I don't want to accept a fill in bass gig for something that I, I don't think I'm going to do well at, you know, if you're going to play a bunch of beach music and Eagles tunes, that is not my bag. I don't know that stuff, but if I know a band, you know, it's going to be knocking out Stanley brothers and Bill Monroe and flat and Scruggs primarily. And, you know, maybe some of the more, some of the newer stuff, I know that stuff and I know I can, I can keep my head above water at least. And, you know, once in a while they will throw out a tune that you just don't know. But if you know guitar hands, if you can read guitar hands and you listen, especially if you have a walking guitar player who walks to chords, much like a bass player might, they give you some clues as to the chord that's coming up. If you got a, a guitar player who's just a switcher, he just goes from G to C instantaneously, you're going to miss that C chord. But if you hear that walk up from G up to C, you're not going to miss it. You just, you got two notes of warning and bam, you hit it and you know the material. What I'm saying is if you know the stuff and the type of stuff that a band plays, it's a lot easier to, to fill in and play fewer incorrect notes. Okay, guitar also is difficult because if you're being asked to fill in on guitar, that probably means their regular guitar player is not going to be there. And as is so typical in bluegrass, many, many times, almost all of the time, the, the guitar player is going to be singing a bunch and doing singing lead on a lot of stuff. A lot of times they're the band leader. So... All I'm saying is if you're asked to fill in on guitar, you need to find out what shoes you're filling because maybe they're expecting you to step up there and sing all those songs and you may not know them. So th that could be tough. Now, if your job is like a second guitar player, which I, I don't think anybody would ever call somebody to be a second guitar player. You see two guitars in bands sometimes, but you know, if that guy can't be there, they just go on without him. You know, that other rhythm player that you sometimes see. But, you know, it depends on the type of gig. They may be doing a, a gig where they're primarily going to sit around and play instrumentals and they're looking for a flat picker who knows the standards, who can who can play Salt Creek and, you know, uh, well, you know the stuff. 
Banjo also is more difficult in a bluegrass setting because it's such a prominent instrument. I mean, a lot of times banjo is kicking off tunes. It's ex the banjo player is expected to play some hot breaks and instrumentals. And if you're, you know, a marginally good banjo player, you might be in over your head with certain types of groups. But, at you know, in, in other types of groups, it kind of falls in with that easier category. If if the the banjo is not that prominent in that particular group you're asked to being to fill in with, then you might get by with, you know, chunking chords and playing some little fills and rolls and, you know, improvising breaks. But generally speaking, in bluegrass, banjo is so prominent that they're going to look over at you and say, you know, how mountain girls can love an A, kick it off. And they expect you to kick it off and they expect you to kind of kick it off in that standard way, you know? And if you can't do that, you know, turn down the gig and then get busy learning how to do that. If you know, so bass guitar and banjo to me are more difficult. They're more difficult to pull in people. Now we, we several times used a fill in banjo player with Cedar Hill and Pony Express very pretty rarely with Cedar Hill, but a little more commonly with Pony Express. And it wasn't a big deal to bring in an unfamiliar banjo player because, first of all, we knew he knew some instrumentals. So if we looked at him and say, hey, what do you want to play? You know, we knew he could play Foggy Mountain Breakdown, Flint Hill Special, and et cetera, et cetera. But we weren't asking him to do any singing necessarily because the, the trio of singers were the bass player, the mandolin player, and the guitar player. So you could have a, a fill-in guy who is just coming in only as an instrumentalist is a less tall order for the band and for the fill-in person. So it just depends. You, you need to find out before you accept, say, yeah, I'll be there. Find out whether you're expecting them or whether they are expecting you to do some singing. And especially if they're expecting lead singing, I would say that lead singing would fall in that easier category. Let's say you're a mandolin player, you're filling in, you can go in there blind, not know what they're going to do. If you know their general style and you know, what kind of bluegrass they play and they might expect you to sing some lead, but they're not going to ask you to sing songs you don't know. They're going to say, hey, what do you know? What what can you sing? And they'll scratch them down and say, okay, we'll get you to sing, you know, Old Home Place. But it's a much taller order if they're expecting you to come in and be the tenor singer and be the baritone singer, you know. Now, I will admit those skills can be learned and sort of learned on the fly. I mean, it can be performed on the fly on certain types of songs, but there's always the limitation. If you don't know the lyrics, you may not pull it off very well. I mean, you can't mumble the lyrics. You need to know the stuff. So that's a tall order. So let me just recap that and I'll move on. The easiest fill in slots are a mandolin player who is not going to be asked to sing a dobro player who's not going to be asked to sing required to sing a fiddle player who's not going to be required to sing. Those are the easy ones. You know, the difficult ones are you're going to be asked to play bass. 
and you have enough pride that you want to play well and you want to hit very few wrong notes. You know, my first rule of bass playing is always try to not hit a wrong note. That's number one. Number two, try to play in time. Get those accomplished, you know, play in time. I mean, you know, a wrong note played in time is better than a right note played out of time. So timing is probably really number one on bass, then correct note. And by correct, I mean a note that, <laughs> that works. Uh, beyond that, you know, most people are happy. If you're filling in, they're happy if you just do that. They don't care if you start throwing in those fancy runs and stuff. And a lot of times, if you do these walking things, you may conflict with what the guitar player does. He may have this little chromatic half-step walk-up that he does, and you're playing this major scale uh, thing. And so you hit that middle note, and you're a half-step apart. So if you're playing bass, filling in, filling in or not, if you're playing bass and you got a walking guitarist who loves those bass runs, as they call them, you know, you need to get your head together. I'm not saying you need to duplicate everything that they do. In fact, I don't really think that's a good idea. But find the places where the guitarist isn't walking, and then that's a good spot to put your little lead in or walk in. Anyway, we'll get into all that right now. Banjo player, it's tall order, but if they're not asking you to sing and you're competent at, you know, some standard instrumentals in case they want you to do Foggy Mountain Breakdown and so on, and you can improvise over the stuff you don't know that well, you, you can do okay. Even though it, you know, it is a tall order because everybody's looking at the banjo player many times in bluegrass. So easy is mandolin, dobro, fiddle. Harder is bass, guitar, and banjo. All right. So let me tell you about some of the uh, fill-in gigs that I've done. Yesterday, I did one. I was, no, I'm sorry. It was the day before yesterday. Today is Monday. So Saturday. I got a call uh, on Tuesday or so. Hey, we're playing uh, at this church over here. And... Uh, can you come play bass with us Saturday at two o'clock? And I said, yes. And these guys play really traditional, almost old timey bluegrass, a lot of heavy on the gospel stuff. Um, and when I first moved down here to America about six years ago, they were the first people I met and I got to play in bass with them. I wanted to get, get down here and get going right away. And I, I started playing bass with this outfit and I played, you know, once a month with them for about a year and kind of got familiar with what they did and wasn't a difficult gig. If I knew the material, which I, you know, I didn't. So I did that a while. The, uh, the fellow that runs the band, Cecil Shutters. His grandson took up the bass. He was playing the joke. And he took up the bass, and I bowed out, and he took over on the bass, and I didn't play with him anymore. And that was okay. He had it, and his other grandson was playing banjo, trying to keep it in the family. So anyway, I would just once a year get a call, and they'd say, hey, can you come play bass? You know, James is 
he, he's, he's gone this weekend. And James is, I think, 14, 15. He's busy this weekend. Can you come over and play with us? And I would go, and I could remember most of the stuff they did. One, it's just not a seriously taxing gig. Most of the stuff was in a key of G, key of A, not real crazy arrangements, and I had some familiarity with it. So I'd say yes to that, you know. Wasn't a big deal, but still, Saturday when I went and did it, I mean, I hit a few clams. Because there is no way that you can step in as a bass player, having not played with this bunch for a year, and they just start something, and you predictably nail every single note. It's a tall order. And I think I really accepted it because, A, they needed a bass player, and I don't mind helping them out. And it was literally one mile from my house where the gig was. And... So I wanted to help them out. And number two, I just wanted the little test, you know, it's a good test once in a while to put yourself in an unfamiliar situation and just see how you do, you know? So I tell myself no wrong notes, play in time, get up there. Well, how did I do score myself? And, you know, I just cringe when I missed one, you know, and I did miss a few, you know? But it was no train wreck, and I think they were happy to have me along. I have done other fill-in, uh, you know, over the years, you borrow from each other. You know, your guy's out, and you ask so-and-so. Happened a lot over the years. I did a job one time. This was probably back about, oh, gosh, 2002 or 2000. Yeah, I don't know. might have been around 2000. And uh, this guy... Uh, from around Atlanta, a banjo player named Jeff Mosier. He called me at the house one day. I think it was, I don't know why I was home in the middle of the day because I was working a day job then. He called me, must have been, no, it was Saturday morning. He called me on a Saturday morning. I get this call. I hadn't talked to him in two years. And he called me up. He says, Hey, I've got this gig. Uh, do you want to come play mandolin w with us? I've got a gig in Charleston, South Carolina, and I need a mandolin player. Will you do it? I said, when is it? He said, it's tonight. I'm like, tonight? It's 10 o'clock. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, and you're talking about playing in Charleston, South Carolina tonight? Uh, you know, I, I ran... I. I was talking to him on the cordless phone. I went inside the house and I, I asked my wife, I said, is there anything going on tonight? I know we don't have a gig, but Mosier's calling me. Want to know if I'll go to Charleston with him. And there wasn't nothing going on. I, I said, yes. So I had to literally throw a change of clothes in a bag, grab my mail and get in the car and drive to the north side of Atlanta to meet them, to pile in the van and drive all the way to Charleston. We rolled into Charleston about supper time and at this point i still had no idea what i was going to do that night i mean i knew it was the mandolin player that's all i knew when i got to his house i realized they had a drummer and a bass player jeff on the banjo and me on the mandolin and i think you know that's one of those type of things that what i'm talking about is how it's it can be pretty easy to be the mandolin player now admittedly they're they're his kind of bluegrass was sort of cranked up and plugged in, but he was not expecting me 
to know the material at all. He was just like, you know, chop rhythm and take solos. And that's what I did. And uh, it, I think it went fairly well, you know, but the bass player knew the stuff. And I knew the bluegrass tunes that he did, so that wasn't a problem. But he got off in left field sometimes, and, you know, it was just flying by the seat of your pants. But on the mandolin, I I would have said yes to that. On the bass, if he had asked me to come play bass, I would have been asking all these questions like, you know, what are you playing? What, you know, what what's, what, you know, what kind of tunes are you doing? What are you, you going to play? Because it's easier to cover a wrong chop on a mandolin than it is to a note on the bass. Anyway, that night it, I thought it went pretty well. And we, the, the outfit that the club we were playing in, the owner had a sailboat in the Harbor and he, it part of the deal was, and you're going to have a room, you know, so we're going to go down there and play. They're going to give us rooms. We're going to spend the night, come back Sunday morning. Great. Well, the owner of the place owned this sailboat, and that was our room. He's going to sleep on a sailboat. So we did. And that was actually kind of neat. I actually slept on deck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we didn't get there. Till we climbed on that boat about 2.30 in the morning. And I slept on that that uh, sailboat gently rocking. Best night's sleep I ever had out under the stars. It was the middle of summer in Charleston. We got up the next morning <laughs> driving back. And uh, we're looking for a Cracker Barrel. That's the, the the doom of any kind of musicians looking for a Waffle House or Cracker Barrel. We get on the interstate and we're heading back to Atlanta. And I'm telling stories. I'm talking. I, I had such a good night's sleep. I was rested up. And I'm telling stories about the time I wrote a letter to the Turkey Creek Pork Ryan Company. And I'm just, I like to talk when I'm driving. <laughs> I'm I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. And these guys are laughing at all these stories and all this crazy stuff. And I noticed that Jeff was driving and he's slowing down. He's starting to slow down. And we're on some interstate in South Carolina. And he says, I think we missed our exit. They were trying, you know, they had to pick up some other interstate to get over to Atlanta. We didn't miss it. We, well, we blew by it. We were like 60 miles past <laughs> because I was talking too much. I'm probably talking too much right now. So we had to backtrack. We got, got back home a little bit late. But what I'm saying is that kind of gig is not that difficult. Um, however, I got called a couple of months ago. I, I got a call from a guy who was putting on a, a they were going to, put on a couple of performances of the cotton patch gospel. And I had seen the cotton patch gospel when it first came out. Our fiddle player in Cedar Hill did that show uh, with Tom key. And when they were rehearsing it up and stuff, and we got some tickets and we went to see our fiddle player do this show. And I saw it for the very first time. That was many, many years ago. That was probably in 1985 or thereabouts. And I kind of forgot about the whole thing. Well, this guy calls me up. Hey, uh, we're doing a cotton patch. Do you want to play bass? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I don't know the songs. You know, how many rehearsals does it involve? Uh, well, we're going to rehearse every night for two weeks. And I was just begging off. 
uh, what about singing? Are you going to, are the musicians going to sing or do you going to have, are you going to have singers and so on and so on. By the time I asked five or six questions, I basically begged off and, you know, told them I wasn't interested in doing it because it's just way too much work and commitment standing on stage and playing the cotton patch gospel show is not, you can't wing it. You need to know it. You know, I'm not saying I wouldn't like to do the show, but at, at this point in time, I just wasn't willing to pour the time in because I didn't want to go up there and do a bad job. So I said no to that one. So sometimes you get asked and it's smarter to say no. And I heard they, they grabbed another bass player. I think a guy who, who is in the music, may I don't know, maybe the music department at the college or something. He came over there and they threw the parts in front of him. And I, I heard it went very well. It's great. Now, if it had been a bluegrass gig, you know, Hey, we're going to play mostly flat and scrugs. And, you know, I probably would have jumped on, jumped on it. I filled in on mandolin with, you know, with a number of bands, they just short a man and they knew I was a mandolin player. I would say yes to those pretty quickly. I used to do it with Woe Nelly and uh, Bob Putnam and Ed Davis's bunch, filled in with them a bunch. Uh, the pressure was always if it was a bass gig, you know, I, I thought more carefully before I would say yes. I've done some fill in bass gigs with, uh, I did some things with, Buck Peacock and just ask them the question, what, you know, are you guys going to pretty much play the standard bluegrass stuff? I'm like, oh, yes, then fine. I'll do it. Uh, I did a, a couple of bass gigs with the guitarist, Curtis Jones guy I've known since he was a kid. And, uh, with him, I asked the question, are you going to play bluegrass or what? Because the guy can play all kinds of stuff. He may, he could go out and do, you know, like a show of nothing but flamenco guitar or something. The guy is all over the map in terms of his ability. So I just wanted to narrow it down. Look, are you playing bluegrass? Are you going to be doing bluegrass? And he rattled off some of the tunes. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll do it. And I thought that went pretty well. I'm sure I hit a clamor too. It's impossible not to at a fill-in gig when you don't know the material until 20 minutes before you get on stage. But, you know, it went well enough that I, I was called again to do it later. So I've had some fill-in gigs that, that went very well and some that didn't. And it's a good idea to, at the, at the end, when you're home, think about it. You know, what did I do right and what did I do wrong? Was this a good fit? Should I have said yes? Was there a better way I could have prepared a little better? Do I want to play with these people? Um, you know, you know, so it kind of like an after action analysis, you know, you need to do that. They're doing it about you. Trust me. They're talking about you and how you did and all that kind of stuff. And, and probably you'll be harder on yourself than they will. And the audience won't be hard on you at all. The, so much of performing is visual and, you know, many gigs that it's not super critical. This is, we're not talking about being called to be on a recording session or something like that. It's going to be, you know, cast in stone for the rest of the world to hear for the rest of eternity. You know, notes do go by and they're an instantaneous thing. And if you hit a clam, don't, you know, don't make a, a, a frowny face. Try not to visually give away. 
uh, just keep playing. Keep playing, and, you know, that's in the past. <laughs> but, you know, put it on your laundry list to try to uh, figure out why that occurred and is there a way to avoid wrong notes in the future. I did a, I got called one time to do a little duo gig. And this guy, I knew he played guitar and fiddle and a little bit of mandolin. And he wanted me to bring my banjo and my mandolin. I said, well, what kind of gig is it? Well, we're just playing this lunchtime thing at this office park. It's it's two hours. You know, they're serving barbecue. Just bring your banjo and your mandolin. We're just going to play a bunch of bluegrass stuff. And I said, yes to it. You know, make a hundred bucks or whatever it was. I show up, get my banjo and my mandolin all tuned up, and I'm ready to go. He set the PA up, and we start, and he launches into Beatles songs and Eagles tunes and just, I mean, some of this, all of it I had heard before, but none of it did I really know. I'm like, okay, when's he going to play Salt Creek? You know, when's he going to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown? And he didn't. The whole gig was that. James Taylor songs, and he just played his guitar and kind of gave me dirty looks the whole gig. Like, because I didn't know this stuff. I was like, man, I don't know if I want to, this is not what I want to be doing. But had I inquired, he told me he was going to do bluegrass, but he didn't. You know, sometimes you're in that situation. You just do the best you can and try to, you know, not make an enemy. Don't read him the riot act for lying to you or whatever. He was probably getting requests from people, you know, who knows? But I've, I've, I did another duo gig with him and it went great. And it was like, okay, we're going to be at the, at the, in front of this old home and they're having this big party and whatnot. And you're going to play claw hammer banjo and he would play fiddle. So I'm playing claw hammer. He's playing fiddle. All we're going to do is play old time tunes for an hour as they arrive or, you know, and where, uh, he told me like what, to, what to wear to kind of look period or something. That was fun. We had a great time doing that. And I would have done that anytime he called, he just playing fiddle tunes and I'm banging on that banjo. That was a lot of fun. But if I knew he was going to do Beatles covers or something, I just didn't want to do that. So you never know, but the more information you can find out in advance, the better it is. So do your homework. Try to get as much information as you can before you say yes. And now, in many cases, you may know the band. But if you don't know them, maybe you can go out and see them play somewhere. You know, maybe they got some YouTube videos. You can watch, see what kind of stuff they're really doing before you say yes. And if you've already said yes, well, you know, you can do your homework and try to figure out what do they play. How do these guys play? Because there isn't just one kind of bluegrass, as everybody knows these days. It stretches all the way from, I don't know, like folk grass, hippie grass, jam band, traditional, super traditional. You know, it's like all over the place. So, you know, a bluegrass gig is not a bluegrass gig. And maybe you can do all those things and like all those things, you know, more power to you. But do your research. Try to find out what style of stuff they do and... Even if it's over the phone, you know, what are you going to do? I've had people tell me, oh, we're just going to play a bunch of standards. And then you show up and what they meant was a bunch of jazz standards and Django Reinhardt tunes. And, you know, I could fake my way through that stuff on mail, but I didn't want to do that on bass. And ask yourself too, are they a real band or 
is this entire band just a pickup group? Because if it's a real band and you're just filling one slot, it's an easier job. Because if you don't do that well, they're still clicking like a machine. But if it's a pickup, totally a pickup group, where this guy, the guitar player gets a call, and he calls a banjo player and a fiddle player and a mandolin player and a bass player, and he's throwing this thing together and then going to go perform. Sometimes those things just go amazingly well. You know, a lot of times you know the other people and you, you kind of settle on some shared material that you, you know, do you know that, you know that, you know, if three out of five know it, you do it. And sometimes they go really well. Sometimes they don't go well at all. So I try to avoid those total pickup band type gigs, although they're all a learning experience. Another thing you can ask in doing your homework, you know, when you're on the phone, have you got, you know, can you give me a set list, a song list, you know, give me something to go on, you know, what, and you know, like what keys you do that stuff in or try to pry for some information, but don't be too timid either. You know, don't, you know, there's a good chance that you'll do very well at it. If you even think in the back of your mind that you probably can pull it off, then you probably can. You're probably right. But then you got to get down to the particulars. You've been called. And if you're doing the calling, you need to make sure they know all this stuff. Where is the gig going to be? What is this thing? Is it a wedding reception? Is it a barbecue? Is it a church picnic? Is it a bluegrass festival? Where is it? When is it? What time? What time are we playing? What time are we done? How many sets are we doing? Because you can't commit to something if you don't know when and where it is. So find out. Get the details. What time do we play? What time are we arriving? What kind of gear? What do I need to bring? What do you need to wear? You need to ask that. You do not want to show up at a bar mitzvah or a wedding reception. And you arrive and you're wearing your jeans and your shirts untucked. And you got your flip-flops on or your tennis shoes and you're wearing a, a trucker hat and the rest of the bands wearing black suits dark suits they got their nice leather shoes on and they look at you like oh my god they might even send you home from something like that so find out what they're wearing you know because you want to kind of fit in you don't if if the band tends to wear jackets Find it out. I mean, you got a jacket in the closet or go to Goodwill and get a jacket, put it on for the gig. Do them that respect of fitting in visually. Um, you want to find out what it pays. Ask. Don't be afraid to ask. Because if, if you're going to be asked to do two rehearsals, show up in a tux, drive 200 miles, play for four hours. I think it's a fair question to say, what does it pay? So don't be shy about the money. Just ask outright. Um, and on rehearsals, are they going to re rehearse? You know, sometimes a rehearsal helps. Sometimes there's no point in it. You're, you know, you're being asked to do something that a hundred rehearsals wouldn't do and they're desperate, but you know, are, is, are they rehearsing for this thing? So factor that in or many cases, if it's at a festival, 
and be like, well, we're going to get there about four hours or we're going to get together and, you know, kind of run through the set and talk about stuff. That is a plus. And if they're not thinking about that, you might even be so bold as to ask them, would they be willing to do that? Say, look, I, I can do the gig, but it, could we get there maybe an hour early, an hour and a half early, just so I can, you can, you know, kind of clue me in as to what we're going to do. They may not have thought of that. They may think, oh, everybody knows all of our material. You know, some people are like that. Know your limits. I mean, if, if this is over your head, you know, turn it down, recommend someone else. But also on the other side, don't be scared. Don't be overly scared and timid. They wouldn't have called you if they didn't think you could pull it off. So, you know, if you shy away from everything, you'll never learn anything. Um, now, when, you, when you're playing with another group, filling in, don't, and most people you don't need to tell this, but don't turn it into your thing. This ain't about you. This is about them. Try to fit in, do what they're doing, and help them be a cog in the, in the works. Now, they may be hoping that you will put on some of what you got, you know? Like, there was a, I've, I've mentioned this before, I used to have this cowboy poem that I recited just when I was performing with Cedar Hill, and not at every gig, but it, it was part of our act. And I wouldn't go foist that on, you know, like I'm filling in, I'm going to do the, my poem, you know, because I just don't get up there and try to turn it into your thing. Now, I have done it at a fill-in gig when the guitar player broke a string and I could see there was a lull in the action and I kind of, you know, just filled the hole, you know, and they were very appreciative of that. But don't take over. Don't try to turn their thing into your thing unless they're expecting you to. Be early. Be crazy early. The worst thing in the world is somebody showing up just in time or late. Don't, if you're going to be late, you might as well stay home. That's my attitude, especially for a fill-in musician. Be early. Be insanely early. Be prepared with your gear. You know, don't be coming up there and you forgot your capo and, you know, can you borrow this? Come on. Be professional about what you're doing. Be early. Help them lug in the gear. I mean, in the big time world, that's all done for you. And you walk on, you do your sound check, and you go back to your dressing room. But in 95% of the music world, there's gear getting hauled. Be prepared. Help. Carry things. That's the main thing. Ask. Say, you want me to carry this in? You want me to carry that in? And you're going to get, yeah, sure, sure. But don't just start doing it yourself, you know. Don't go in there and start hooking up mics and slinging wires and doing all that if it's not your gear. So have a little humility there that they know what they're doing with that stuff. But they could, they would certainly appreciate a little extra muscle. So help them out. Tote the gear. And after the gig, be polite with the people that come up and talk to you. Uh, you know. If you see them starting tearing down, you know, just say, hey, you want me to roll up these wires? 
Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I was always very particular. I wanted my wires rolled a particular way. I didn't like people running them around their elbow and tying it in a big old knot. You know, maybe that's the way they did it. So maybe stay away from the wires and just lug the big heavy stuff. Ask how you can be helpful. And they may say, nah, it's all right. You're, it's cool. Just hang out. But be helpful. Because if, if you're one of these guys that shows up and you say, well, you know, I'm just filling in. I'm going to go back here and order me a plate of, uh, I don't know, fish tacos. And I'm just going to sit back here. And when they call for me, I'll step up there and play. They would much prefer that you at least be on standby and be helpful and grab a couple of those monitors and lug them in. Another thing, and this is the last thing, this is getting way too long. Another thing is don't give them unwanted advice. Don't walk in and start trying to help them with your brilliant schemes and ideas about how things ought to be and what they ought to play. And that, you know, I doubt they called you to be their producer. So just, you know, try to do what they're doing and try not to force your stuff on. Even if you know, there have been several instances where I, you know, I knew something that would maybe help them. If you do offer a little advice, just do it kind of on the, you know, don't go in there and start telling them what to do or you will not be asked back. Um, so that's it. Filling in with, uh, with other bands is a great way to get your foot in the door and get you some playing experience. And you're, it's a trade. You're getting something out of it. The band that's calling you is getting something out of it. But take it, take it with a certain amount of seriousness, knowing full well that you're not going to fill the shoes of their great player who has been playing steady with them for seven years. They know that too, but get up there and do your best. No hot dogging, you know, except during your solos. And when it's all over, no matter how it went, don't go stomping off mad, swearing you're never going to play with those idiots again, because that ain't good for you or them. When you're done, thank them. Thank them for calling you. And if you want to do it again, if it was kind of fun and it turned out pretty well, make sure you let them know. Don't just say, ah, that was fun and leave. Say, if you ever need me again, give me a call. Here's my number. That was great. So keep, don't burn your bridges is what I'm saying. I have felt like it a few times. I've gotten madder and all at, at, at a gig a time or two in my life and Luckily, I had the good sense to keep my trap shut and not mouth off, you know. But sometimes you, you'll put yourself in a situation that is just like beyond belief. You cannot believe what they're, this is, this is nuts. But it ain't your gig. Just smile, chalk it up to experience, and don't burn your bridges. So anyway, I hope you guys all enjoyed this little episode and Thank you to, I got, I had a guy this week. He's, he sent me an email. He said, I, uh, I'm a mandolin player, but I bought your bass instruction book just basically to support the show. And thanks. I love the show. Thanks. You know, keep, keep up the good work kind of thing. 
And I've suggested that before, that if you like the show and you want to chip in a little bit here to keep this machine going, I could use the help. And it's very simple. Just go over to BradleyLaird.com, stroll around, find something you want. That you, you know, I prefer you buy something that, that would actually be of some use to you, but it doesn't have to be. It's a way to kick into the kitty. You can... You could buy the old Jam Session Survival book or the bass instruction course or a claw hammer banjo video, whatever. It all still ends up in the same pot on my end. And I sometimes wonder when I see an order come through and I go, I wonder if that person's really buying that to learn it or whether they're just throwing me a bone. I don't know, but I do appreciate it. And of course, there is that Grass Talk Radio supporter package which you can just set any amount you want. So if you're that lucky person that just won the lottery, you know, how about throw about 50 grand my way? And, uh, no, I'm just, well, maybe I'm not kidding. Um, and the number one thing that you can do to support the continuation of this podcast, which I was reminded in, in an email from a, a listener not long ago, he said, I like your show. And, your show is the only podcast out there doing what you're doing. And that's why I made it. It is unique. I don't know of another show that is really about people who play bluegrass and want to play bluegrass. So if you like it, you know, the number one thing that you could do, and it costs nothing, is tell somebody else about it. At the next jam session, at a bluegrass festival. On Facebook, you know, social media, I got mixed feelings about that, but I do appreciate it. Share a link, you know, send it to all your friends, but nothing like personally telling somebody about it. Because if you like it, maybe they'll like it. And if they don't like it, I won't get my feelings hurt either. So y'all take care and I'll talk to you in the next podcast. Oh, hey, one more thing. I decided at the end of this episode to include one of the cowboy poems that I used to perform. This one is called the Cowboy Love Poem. It was written by myself, and here it is. Well, my shirt is torn and tattered. My canteen sprung a leak. I ain't had a crumb to eat in better than a week. My horse, he's looking awful bad so thin his saddle slips. His ribs are like a washboard, a scowl across his lips. Day by day we trudge along the cowpoke and his beast. Them buzzards always circling, waiting for their feast. The sand is burning in my eyes, my skin is parched and red. If it weren't for non-cactus rind, I figure I'd be dead. But all in all, I can't complain. It's really not a bad life. Because at least I don't take no orders from no pesky, nagging wife. Thank you.